This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Kay, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. special guest, Baker Levitt. What in the fuck are y'all talking about? There he is. It's merely impossible to be into CrossFit and not have heard of Baker. He is the informal mayor of the entire internet and one of Killcliffe's fearless leaders. Baker is blessed with a charisma that allows him to wear many hats, and aside from assisting in Killcliffe's quest for world domination, he is also involved in many other facets of the company. Topping the list, of course, is sponsoring fitness competitions, promoting athletes, and giving back through the Navy SEAL Foundation. Get to know this Georgia native a bit more as he and John toss hunting stories back and forth for what turned out to be an extensive portion of this conversation. So if you like movie references, shit-talking, shooting animals, all while over-consuming Killcliffe, stay tuned because this episode has it all. This is 118. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. I'm here with John, Luke, and Callie. And our guest today is Baker, the man with one name. (laughs) Well, a man like Baker needs no introduction, so technically we should just start the conversation. We'll just just roll right into it. So, Baker, what's how you doing, man? Good. I'm sitting here in Seattle with Callie. I just found out that Callie lives in my city, which has just made my, my life a lot easier. That's really very exciting. important. Baker's been texting me asking for her address for like three months. I'm serious. <laughs> Bakersville, really? Seattle. He should have texted me. I would have given her, I would have sent it to him within seconds. Yeah. Yeah. We, Baker and I were talking before the show and, uh, I, I was telling him that I, I'm always shocked when no one, like when I say, mention his name and someone doesn't know who he is. And it's always shocking and it's like you think that that person potentially has never been on social media or uh, is not involved in CrossFit in any way. So um, it's it's rare, but there are a few people still out there whose lives he hasn't touched. You know, uh, what I'm kind of curious to know is how how come he gets to – sit like right next to you for the show and this is like a first time so i don't i'm trying to find the connection here well let's uh (laughs) let's have a you know if we could think of like one person kind of like a movie wise that you would relate baker to jabba the hutt okay jabba the hutt (laughs) i was gonna go with like the wolf from pulp fiction definitely because like if if there's anybody out there that needs to get anything done in the crossfit world call baker it's like hey call baker because baker knows a guy who knows a guy who killed a guy who owes him a favor it's a combination of the wolf from pulp fiction and um and violator lou uh lou thoman from the movie hot tub time machine Oh, uh, we know who we know who violator is we're all big hot tub time machine hot tub time machine too no, I didn't see the second uh, Yeah, it, it, it was sucked. 
It was awful, except for the the closing credits were amazing, but it was just stupid. The first well, one was I, one of the funniest movies ever made. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, even though John Cusack uh, didn't have like the the his best role in that, I think he was really the the glue that held that whole thing together. I think the it's fair to say one. Uh, the first one. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people probably didn't give the movie a chance because the name yeah. is awful. Like, it's, you just it's think it's going to be awful. But that movie is epic. I mean, yeah. that is a cult classic for sure. It's amazing. I love it. Um, well, usually we try to wait till the end of the show to talk about favorite movies, but... Well, that's not a favorite. That's just one of them. Yeah, yeah. That, that's true. That's just one of them. But um, but essentially, Baker, will you give us a little background on kind of who you are, your involvement uh, with Killcliffe, and also, like, uh, uh, your background before Killcliffe? So, um... Worked for Killcliffe. I was Killcliffe was started in January 2011, and I was in New York City going to school up there. And um, I came across Todd, who started and founded uh, Killcliffe, and um, it, this was in May of uh, 2011. And um, God damn it, um, phone won't stop. He's a and, popular man. And uh, just kind of started working. I was the fourth guy at the company, fourth person at the company, and. Um, Wound up investing in it, and just started working, and uh, you know it's just been a wild ride ever since. Then we just uh, made the Inc. 500, which is uh, a list for uh, fastest growing privately held companies in the United States, and we were ranked 103 out of uh, 5,000, and then we were the number four fastest growing privately held company in the food and beverage sector. And then we were the number one fastest growing privately held beverage company in America, which is really, really cool because when I first started working with Todd, like I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it. I didn't think it was possible, but um, I just never imagined we'd be where we are today. And uh, it's just kind of a, it's cool to see like putting in a lot of hard work. And John, you talk about this a lot too, you know, with your past and football and, you know, and all that stuff and how you were a hard worker. And if you, work hard and bust your ass um, and work smart, you can accomplish a lot. And um, it's just kind of a testament to our team and our company and Todd's leadership and, you know, letting people do what they're good at and uh, just kind of what do you taking think, off. What do you think has, like, caused this brand to be so explosive versus, like, other, like, the fit aids out there and everything else? Because it's almost become, like, a lifestyle brand, don't you think? Um, it, we're kind of heading that way. Uh, I, I think it's people... I'll never make any claims about our product. We don't do that as a company. Um, the only thing we say is it tests positive for awesome. And if you drink Killcliffe and you don't test positive for awesome, like that's genetics. <laughs> Take it up with your parents. It's not our fault. But we don't make any claims. And I think when we started with Killcliffe and you know I started doing the social media and everything for it, I've never been a person that cared a lot about money. Like when I was in real estate years ago, I made a ton of money. And just as quickly as I made it, I lost it. And it just put a really sour taste in my mouth. You know, focusing on money um, kind of led myself and the tons and tons of other people, you know, in the 2000s, you know, into a bad place. And I just got a bad taste in my mouth. So when with Killcliffe, the goal was never money. I never wanted to get money from people. It was always like if I could make you smile or I could make you laugh, that was my goal, you know, because that made me feel good. Like, okay, I brought a, a, a smile or put a pep in someone's step or, you know, a little pick-me-up throughout the day. And, um, you know, it was kind of me putting my sense of humor out there. You know, John, Luke, Kelly, we all have very similar senses of humor, I think. 
And it's just funny when you can connect with people that have that same sense of humor. Um, you know, like I met you guys, we hit it off. That was years ago. And that was just kind of the goal. I, I think it's just in interacting with, with the people that support our brand. And, you know, we always try to engage someone comments or likes a post or makes a post about us or sends a, sends us a picture. We try to reciprocate that and show our appreciation by engaging with our, you know, the community that we've built. And I, I, honest to God, I think that's what it is. You know, we yeah. don't run around, we don't talk ill or speak ill of our competition. And, and you know, like the other thing too, what you're kind of alluding to is like, you don't take yourselves too seriously. No. You know you're a fucking drink company. Just like we're one of thousands of strength conditioning right. programs uh, out there. Kelly, Kelly, we are the premier. We are the premier. premier. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. Yeah, premier. Uh, the other thing too is, um, you know, uh, recently I realized that Killcliffe had kind of hit it big <laughs> with that uh, kind of that CrossFit kind of spoof video that just came out that I, I saw floating around where the guys are, uh, yeah, those guys are like all of a sudden out of nowhere, they like start just pounding Killcliffe. And I was like, Oh, Killcliffe has effectively woven themselves into the fabric of CrossFit seeing as that now they're getting punned on these deals. Uh -huh. So I thought yeah, that so was pretty good. That's Matt Best and JT. So the guys behind article 15. So Matt and Rocco were Rangers, second battalion Rangers, uh, JT. And I don't, I don't remember the other guy's name. They were, uh, uh, uh pair of rescue guys ate in, uh, in the air force, JTACs and CCTs. And they, um, so they're, they're technically operators in the sense of, of Hollywood, you know, the way that, you know, Hollywood and society defines, you know, uh, those types and they don't, sell that like they don't sell the door kicking tactical aspect like that was a part of their background and that's their story but it, and it's made them who they are today but like those guys are very similar to Killcliffe like they want to make people laugh and do really funny stuff and that's kind of the whole thing so they're coming out with a movie called Area 15 um, and I can't go a ton into it I can talk to you guys about it offline but um, it's going to be hilarious. And if you, John, if you take a second and go look at Article 15 social media and their YouTube channels, I think they've had like 30 million views combined. Like they're a juggernaut and they're really cool guys. Like um, I, we met them, um, JT reached out to me a few months ago uh, through a really good friend, uh, Dean Brantley, who owns um, Two Bed Arms, which is they make uh, assault rifles. He introduced us. And we just kind of hit it off, and so they told us about this movie they're coming out with, and we're like, yeah, we'd love to be involved. And so we just kind of started working with them and, and doing some some stuff and some collaborations and whatnot. So it's going to be really cool. It's going to be, you know, Luke, you said cult classic with regards to uh, Hot, Tub, Hot Time Tub Time Machine. Machine. Like, Area 15 will absolutely be a cult classic. It's going to be an awesome movie. And the guy that's directing it is uh, Peter Brinker, I think. I don't I think that's maybe he's like a famous director guy. Somebody, yeah. I don't and know. And they they funded the cool part about it with that film is <clears throat> they wanted to do a um, a crowdfunding to raise awareness for it, and they raised like a million dollars to pay for this film. But they already had I think if I'm not mistaken, they had the funds to do the movie. They just you know a lot of people are using like crowdfunding now to yeah. raise awareness, Kickstarter campaigns. And yeah, stuff. it's really that's, interesting. That's smart. That's cool. Um, I know Luke was wondering if you're you have like a job title for Killcliffe. Like, what is your business? Yeah, do you have an official job title? Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, I do. I have a couple. Um, so I have. <clears throat> it's kind of a long answer, but my attention span is extremely short, um, and I need multiple roles 
to keep me occupied because I'll start working on something of like, all right, this is bored. I need to work on something else. So, yeah, I mean, if I had a title, yeah, it'd be <clears throat> business development. I also cover the Northwest Territory course um, and then, you know, liaison between CrossFit HQ and, and, uh, and our headquarters in Atlanta and just, you know, try to make cool stuff happen and hang out with cool people and, you know, connect the dots. That's what I really like to do is connect the dots and create relationships and see how relationships can be mutually beneficial between Killcliff and other companies. Like we're doing a bunch of stuff now with Leupold Optics and Kimber um, and uh, just neat companies that are willing to reciprocate and, you know, spread the word. Speaking of new stuff with Killcliff, uh, Luke, did you get a chance to try like the cold brew stuff? I know that they premiered that at the games. Did you try that? Yeah, we drank a lot of it. At the games, it was pretty funny. Uh, so Killcliff had their big, you know, monstrosity of a booth, and uh, all of a sudden I, I just kind of rolled over and got behind the counter and just started handing stuff out, and Todd's like, uh, dude, you know you're supposed to be charging for that stuff, and I was like, nah, you're, nah, you're kidding. We're paying so, it forward. He, he's like, no, he's like, seriously, dude, I think we're charging for that stuff. I'm like, are you sure? He's like, I thought they were going to premiere the cold brew, because there was like, so much hype about it, with like dropping down like a hot air balloon in the middle of like the stadium. We had, we had that. We, we had a, Shut up. We had a 30-foot tall laser cat <laughs> that you filled with helium and ran on tanks all day and we were going to fly that above our booth but uh hq uh didn't they didn't like that idea so we no, had... you, here listen i should be the marketing guy here's what you do okay you go above restricted airspace you drop cans of kill cliff with little parachutes on them all <laughs> For that stadium, I'm talking a thousand cans. Thousand? I would just, like a hundred thousand. Listen, cans. here's the experience: people are cheering with their hand in the air, and a kill cliff just parachutes into it. And yeah. They open it, chug it, and they buy a case right there. <laughs> the uh, we also come from yeah. our business model has always been uh, it's it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. No, absolutely. So I wouldn't necessarily get Luke to be your your liaison for ideas like that. <laughs> you know, Kelly, that's just not a business model. That's kind of a a life mantra that I've adopted. <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, I've long just been asked for forgiveness. Like, I'm sorry. I didn't know I couldn't do that. Yeah, really? Interesting, though. One thing I've learned is, so, so Killcliffe, we have 38 employees now, full-time employees, the insurance and all that great stuff. And, you know, Luke, what you just said was a terrible, terrible idea, really a horrible idea. No, I don't, I don't think so. What I've learned is that the best ideas normally start off and come from the worst ideas. So you're saying I have a chance. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that don't ever let don't ever let anyone censor you. Yeah. <laughs> always say yes, right? And that what John's always say yes yeah. and just figure out a way to do it. Um, make it happen. Yeah, like hey, uh, sounds good. Let's do it. Awesome. I don't know how we're gonna make it happen, but let's make it happen. Yeah, exactly. So Baker, uh, Baker, let's uh, let's talk about something um, uh, a little more kind of a little more serious. Let's talk about hunting. Yes. Oh my God. Um, yeah. All right, so I know. Uh, all right, so you are not only a bow hunter, but you are also a uh, rifle uh, hunter. So, so you shoot, you you hunt both mediums. I started um, as a, I started with a, with a hunting with a rifle. So, but you've uh, progressed into bow hunting, right? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, what what would you say is your best hunting experience to date with uh, rifle and bow, and okay. also uh, what kind of bow do you shoot? And you can't say human. What do you think? Yeah, it, it was is that human targets or what are we talking? So my favorite hunting experience with a rifle, 
It's a really good question. I'm actually really glad you asked that. Um, so we also have to throw in a shotgun into this, John, because shotgun is for birds. Um, my best hunting experience with a shotgun, um, <clears throat> I would say, was last year, or 2013 in Nebraska, when I reaped in two birds, which is I took a tail fan and crawled up over this ridge, a tail fan of a turkey, and held it in front of my face, and these two turkeys saw it. Thought you were... <laughs> thought I was another male trying to come in their space, and it charged me. Classic. And I dropped both of them with one shot. Nice. What kind, like pheasant, you said? Turkeys. Oh, turkeys. And the interesting part about that, what made that so special, we had been hunting for two and a half days with zero luck. We didn't, we hadn't seen any, any gobblers. We hadn't, I mean, it was awful. <clears throat> we were sold a bill of goods. We went to this, on this, to this property thinking it was one thing we got there and it was the polar opposite of what we were told it was. So, and then that me reaping in those two birds, fanning them in, set things in motion that turned that trip into one of my favorite hunting trips of all time. So it was awful. It was awful. It was awful. And then it, we had one thing happen, and it changed everything about the trip, and then it, it was on. That was my favorite uh, hunting trip with a shotgun. My favorite hunting experience with a rifle would have to be in Africa uh, in 2003. <clears throat> um, the first time I ever shot a muzzleloader, which is a primitive weapon, which is... Were you in dental school at the time? Huh? Were you in dental school at the time? Dental school? Dental school? Yeah, shot Cecil the Lion, right? Yeah, that this is, yeah, no, no, he shot, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't Cecil, it was Cecil's dad. Simba. Simba. <laughs> oh my God. Y'all are idiots. So, <laughs> so we, we were, I'd never shot a muzzleloader before, and we were driving back to our camp, and it was my turn to, to shoot. My brother had just shot a big old warthog. And we were going back for lunch, and we saw this monstrous warthog. My gun was in a scabbard in the back of the truck. And he said, oh, my God, oh, my God. So we pulled the truck over, jump out, and my brother goes, here, shoot this. And I was like, I have no clue how to shoot this gun. He goes, put this primer in, you know, shoot it like a regular rifle. So did that, jumped down, <clears throat> ran over this berm, and dropped a gold uh, metal warthog. First shot was awesome. My favorite hunting experience with a bow was last year at Jeff Tucker's place. Um, I shot my biggest uh, whitetail to date. It was yeah, a nice little pointer. Send me that picture. That was a nice. That was, that was a hell of a picture. Yeah, and I sitting there, and he. The funny part about that story, he, he goes, "You can shoot any deer you see out of that stand, except this one nine point that's been coming in." I said, "All right." <clears throat> so I'm sitting in the stand. 45 minutes later. This big nine-pointer comes in, and I was like, that's obviously the deer I'm not supposed to shoot, okay? So a few minutes later, this eight-point comes cruising in, drop him, go run and grab Jeff, you know, gut it, clean it, take it to the processor, call the taxidermy, all that stuff. Then we're back at Jeff's that night having dinner, and he brings in a screenshot, a photo he printed from a trail cam of the nine-point he told me not to shoot. He goes, so you saw this deer? And I said, no, that's not, I didn't see that nine-pointer. That nine-pointer has a crab claw. Different one. And he goes, oh, well, hell, you should have shot that other one then. And I was like, well, shit. shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's already come and gone. So, yeah. <clears throat> um, that's, uh, those are my three favorite experiences 
with uh, hunting. But I mean, I've, some of my best hunting experiences and memories um, have come from trips that weren't successful. You know, with when uh, you know rating success based on harvesting an animal. I mean, for me, it's 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 not about the kill; it's the process, uh, start to finish, preparing for planning a trip. I love planning hunting trips. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. Getting my friends excited about it. You know, getting everybody worked up, and you know, it, the laughs you create, and the memories, and you know, it's just it's awesome. And um, you know, harvesting an animal. Is at the end of the day is just is kind of the bonus to the trip, but the, the for me it's the process. I really enjoy the process of hunting and and all that stuff. And you know it's like you, all this stuff's going on with you know Cecil the lion and this dentist and anti hunters and you know I could I can sit down with an anti hunter and educate them on the benefits of hunting and and win every aspect of the argument. You know. Uh, hunting licenses and fees pay for conservation. You know, if you want to, you know, preserve something, you place a value on it. Um, but the one thing with hunting that that's hard to justify to anti-hunters, and that's the one thing you can never get past, is the actual taking of an animal's life. And that's the one thing that, you know, that hunters have problems with is versus anti-hunters. At the end of the day, you are harvesting an animal, and a lot of people don't understand that. But you know, just the process and eating what you, you know, providing meat, meat for yourself and your family and knowing where your food came from, like, that's just, that's the ultimate. It's awesome. Well, I mean, uh, if you go back and you look at, you know, really Teddy Roosevelt set up uh, the conservation in this country, and, uh, you know, a big part of the conservation was, you know, controlled hunting to keep the populations low. Like, when they didn't have that, actually the populations of animals ended up uh, going the other way because there was, uh, you know, no competitive predators. I mean, it's pretty pretty amazing if you look at, like, how that whole thing kind of, uh, you know, you know, just the kind of the history of it. Anybody that's ever done any hunter safety classes or ever done anything, they, they teach pretty well about it. So it's uh, uh, it's definitely something that, you know, I, I enjoy doing and I always enjoy hearing some stories about it. I mean, everybody always has these pretty epic stories. And I know Baker's got some opportunities to really hunt in some great places. Is there yeah. is there any, like, um, would there be any value to, like, to kind of play, like, devil's advocate to, like, be able to, I don't know, dart an animal, like use like almost like a blank or something that they do puts them out. They, and then dart, you can... they dart rhinos in Africa. Okay. So yeah. it's like similar. You go through the same process of like, for instance, like fishing where you can throw back whatever, just for the sport of it type thing. Catch and release. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, so if you want to, so that which gets counted gets managed. Okay. And if you, they, they outlawed elephant hunting in Botswana uh, years, a few years back. God damn it. And... <laughs> Guess what doesn't exist in Botswana anymore? Elephants. There's no elephants. Um, and then you look at other, you know, and you have to do population control because an elephant eats 200 pounds a day of foliage. And if, let's say, let's say you've got a 10,000 hectare piece of property, a hectare in Africa, it's 2.47 acres. And that, that piece of property can only sustain 200 elephants. Mm-hmm. So you have to manage the population because here's what here's what most people don't know about elephants. Elephants don't have any predators, and when they die of natural causes, that natural cause is starvation. So what happens? An elephant it gets to an age where it doesn't have any teeth, and it can't chew food, so it starves to death. So there's just a lot of stuff with hunting that a lot of people that that and you can't expect them to know because yeah. they don't do it. I so didn't, I didn't know that. And then like if you look at the wolf issue. They reintroduced wolves in the Pacific Northwest uh, a few years ago in some states, and and 
the population is out of control. I mean, there's some elk herds in Idaho that have been dropped by 50 to 60% wow. because the wolves haven't been kept in check. Well, and also wolves have no natural predators. Right, and well, the thing that, about wolves that sucks is that wolves, it's when they hunt an animal, they don't kill it. It's death by consumption. So they take out its hamstrings. They run it till it's exhausted and it can't move anymore, and then they just start eating it. Mm -hmm. like, they don't go for the neck or the skull. They take the hamstrings and the ass, and that's where they start. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's... How do wolves die, then? Do they die of old gummy, old age, like starvation? So, uh, yeah, the, yeah the, the issue with, with hunting and anti-hunters is, so it's a phenomenon, it's called charismatic megafauna. And what charismatic megafauna means is when, when people think of your childhood and all the Disney movies and all the cartoons you've seen that have, and the calendars that are passed out in school and hanging up on walls and stuff, and you got to think of the animals that are on those calendars, lions, tigers, wolves, you know, you don't ever see like, ducks or turkeys or pheasants and, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, and lions and it's things like that that people associate childhood memories and human characteristics with. Like, like, But it's completely unrealistic. It's a caricature of what an animal actually is. And it all started in 1969 when Walt Disney created the movie Bambi. How did that movie end? What happened to Bambi's parents? They got killed by the hunter. That's when, that's when the anti-hunting, if you want to pinpoint one thing that created the anti-hunting movement it would be Bambi, the movie. Playing off our emotions. Yeah, but people get upset about this dentist that killed a lion. No one gives a shit about a, a deer that was shot. Mm -hmm. You know, or I shot. I have a. We're dropping a video tonight of a, a turkey uh, hunting film, a short film. No one's gonna be upset about. I thought it was shot. because like those animals. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are more they're they're there's a smaller population, so they're you know more susceptible to like being an endangered species and things like that. So everyone's saying, oh, he killed an endangered species. Lions aren't endangered. Yeah, I didn't think not so, at all. but like not. elephants not. and like, not, not, they're not. No. Okay. So that word gets thrown around a lot, and if you if you look at um, like I said, it's pop. You have to population control. Like you have to like you have to manage wildlife because and if you don't because conservation and wildlife management like it protects the animals and in Africa like you get rid of hunting guess who you then you can't have anti-poaching organizations and you can't you can't pay the guys to go out and protect these animals yeah. they know? paid uh, I, I, I want to say uh, legal hunting in Africa last year was something like 200 million dollars yeah yep. uh, the we, we went hunting uh, a couple months ago up on a, a friend's property up in Central California and I stated his um, his hunting lodge on his property, and he has hunted and taken every single large mammal on the planet. I mean, literally his um, everything from an elephant to you know you walk into this hunting lodge and you're like, dude, I've only seen pictures of these ele uh, elephants. I mean, uh, of these animals. I mean, he has everything. So was it Ted Nugent? Uh, no, no, no. This guy's just uh, he, he's a he's a wealthy dude, and that's been his passion is basically traveling the world and hunting. And uh, I asked him about his elephant. And he said that actually they paid a pretty significant amount of money to go out and they went out and shot this old bull that, like Baker said, you know, didn't have his teeth and was was on its way out. And so, exiled from the herd. Yeah. So, so basically what happens is, is once they get to that point, they exile him. And so he took that old bull and he goes, as they went down, he goes, out of nowhere, there was like 25 different tribes came out of the woodwork. Oh, yeah. And literally took every piece of this animal. He goes, literally, he, he ended up with a skull and the tusks. Every other piece of that uh, of that bull was dissected, taken, 
and was gone within about six hours. And the, the whole thing was gone and fed hundreds, I mean, hundreds of people. And like it, the, the money IP paid that went to this. I mean, as I was listening to him, I was like, man, that's, um, I mean, it, you know, why, why you think like it's a beautiful animal, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's at the end of its life cycle. And here's a situation where, you know, he comes in and I think, you know, it was 25, 50,000 that he paid and oh, yeah. it fed a lot of different animals and, or a, a lot of different people. And, was you know definitely pretty amazing to see. I mean, I I had some reservations because I mean I I'm sure everybody's been to the, the circus. I mean, which is also pretty horrible. But you know, seeing those kind of majestic animals. But when you hear kind of the whole backstory behind it, I mean, it's like um, we, we were up uh, hunting on his property because uh, he has cattle and uh, alfalfa and uh, a lot of different things up in his uh, his farm in Central California and his ranch. And everything is decimated by pigs. So oh, the uh, you know the the pig population is so robust and I, I think like a female sow has what like 15 little piglets at a time and they, they might have two or three litters a year I mean literally like they hunt those things with uh, extreme prejudice and it barely controls the population so when we were up there I mean uh, he, he's like hey uh, shoot as many as you can see he goes we hunt them almost every single day he has five guys that hunts the, uh, that hunt these things on site if they see them they kill them and they can't even dent the population and they, so, they, they hunt them all year round. Uh, John, so on a, a wild hog, so at 21 days old, uh, a, a wild hog begins eating solid food. At six months, it goes into heat for the first time in its life. Within 48 hours, it's, it gets pregnant. So the gestation cycle on a wild hog is 90 days. So, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, it's 90 days? Or... I think, yeah, I think it's 90 days. So, at, no, yeah, 90 days. So, it gives birth to anywhere from 8 to 16 piglets. Within 24 hours of giving birth, it goes into heat again. All right? So, it is a vicious cycle. Like, if you think of the lifespan and the downline from one sow, it, it gives birth two to three times a year. So, if, it, it, three times in a 15-month cycle. It gives birth three times. And it just... It's, it, you, that if, sounds fucking awful. If you don't oh, kill percent yeah. of your hog population every year, they will overrun you. That's yeah. how, how, you, how far yeah. you have to stay ahead of them. And then, with regards to the elephants, John, so if you fly into Johannesburg, South Africa, and then you take a puddle jumper to East London, and you head north to Tanzania, I could put Callie in a car and drive from East London up to Tanzania. Callie's never been hunting, have you? Just pheasant hunting once. Okay, so Callie no knowledge of hunting, could tell me the communities that we drove through, which ones hunting was involved in and which ones there was no hunting involved because the, the communities that are near hunting operations are thriving. People have jobs, they have schools, the kids have food to eat, there's money in the community, and there's just an overall happiness. Whereas communities where there is no um, hunting involved or anywhere near that, it's desolate. It's just there's nothing there. And then, like, people, you know, he shot that line in Zimbabwe. The unemployment rate in Zimbabwe is 90%. Think about that. 90%. It's crazy. That's, that is crazy. So, no, John, when are we going to go hog hunting? Good, I'm down. Uh, I, I, pulled a, uh, uh, I pulled an elk tag, a California elk tag. No uh, shit. Yeah, so I, I was on a lottery and ended up pulling an elk tag. So I, I get to go uh, shoot a uh, female up here, and I think I go in – 
late September, early October. So I, I was on a list, and I mean, they only issue a few of those a year. So I was pretty excited to get that, and uh, we'll go out and get one. And I actually, when we were up there uh, hunting the pigs, same property, I was able to kind of scout it, and they had some really, really beautiful big uh, big males, and I spotted a couple of them. I mean, they were 1,000 yards away. I mean, they'll be seven, 800-yard shots. But when I, uh, I had a pretty epic deal where we literally uh, – took a Jeep and we kind of drove in the back and we kind of dropped in behind maybe, I mean, uh, it had to be a herd of probably about 25 pigs and maybe about 40 little piglets. And we snuck up on them. And, uh, I, I sent you the pictures. I took those two big, uh, big male and big female. what did they and, weigh? Uh, I want to say pre-dressed, they were easily, they were right around 300 pounds a piece. So I took 600 pound a hog. And then, uh, I think I ended up, with because um, one of my buddies didn't want his, I ended up with over 400 pounds of meat. Yeah, so that picture you sent me, I posted that on my social media, and like the the, the it's one of my favorite photos, hunting pics I've ever been sent. And the interesting part about it was I had to explain to people who John was that you know hunting friends that don't do CrossFit or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just want all of you to know that this guy was an offensive lineman in the NFL for 10 years. He's like close to 300 pounds. Look how big his thigh is, and then look at the pigs. And they were like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I was like, yeah, he's not just like some regular guy. I was like, those are monsters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they were they, were, yeah, they were big pigs. I mean, the better part, though, I mean, I've, I've hunted pigs in Texas, and uh, those were the probably actually my favorite shot in the world that I took uh, was uh, we were at a pig hunt in Texas, and I'm sitting in this little stand uh, that's on a ground, and it's in the dried river creek. And uh, so I'm sitting in there, and we're hunting at night, and uh, I basically have a, a night vision, kind of a you know PBS 14 kind of deal on the on the, the rail of my rifle, and I'm, I, I got like a what is it, an LMT MWS 308. So I'm sitting in there. It's like 11 o'clock at night. It's pitch black, and I'm kind of looking through the you know through the nods, and uh, all of a sudden I see these two pigs kind of down the uh, down the river, um, like the river embankment, and uh, I'm sitting there, and it's me and Rob Wolf are in this little light box in the middle of Texas. It's completely dark, and I'm the only one with any night vision. And uh, I ended up dropping the one hog at, I think, just a little over 300 yards on, uh, under, you know, uh, with night vision. So uh, literally one shot, and I watched the thing go down, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, because we, you know, we, we had lazed everything. I mean, I, I knew landmarkers. I, I kind of had an idea of how far he was, but that was a really good shot. And um, actually the same trip, I ended up getting a pretty good-sized deer, and uh, at, at a probably a, maybe a little over 300, maybe about 350, and I ended up having to hook up a rope and drug it back to the stand. And uh, I, I literally hooked like this rope up, tied it to its legs, and I did like a sled drag, uh, you know, three, four hundred yards with this with, with this deer dragging it through the road. And I'm like, oh my god! I'm like, good thing we do all those sled drags and work on all that stuff. Dead weight's a, a pain to drag. It's it's really tough. Did you, John? Did you get to eat any of the hog you shot in Texas? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. No, we uh we dressed them right that day. But there was a big difference when we went to when we hung them. We went to skin them. That was the nastiest fucking animal I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was covered in ticks. I mean, it was matted. It was disgusting in Texas. Yeah. The pigs that we shot in California. Uh, were like looked like somebody had just bathed them. They were like, uh, like, you know, perfectly clean. I mean, one of the pigs was so nice that we ended up uh, the taxidermy guy came out and skinned it and turned one of them into a rug. I mean, the thing was blonde. It was just this like most beautiful looking. Uh, yeah, their uh, diet's totally different. In, uh, yeah. in Texas, there's more of a scrounge, like a scavenger, versus like California, they're just inundated with. You shot in the valley, right, California? 
Yeah, they, I mean, these things just eat nothing but alfalfa. So, I mean, the, the meat's been awesome. I mean, uh, these guys have all come over. We've been cooking it, uh, you know, pretty, pretty much. We've been living on that and uh, the cow I got. So once I get this elk, I'll put that, I'll replace that in the freezer. And, uh, John, and, is that what know, we had? That. Is that what we had when we were over at your place last? Oh, yeah. Porkalypse, too. Yeah, that's what we call it, a porkalypse. I didn't know that. I had no yeah. idea. Porkalypse. Yeah, those, those are the things I hunted. A different experience for you now that you know that, Kelly? It, it kind of is. I actually just thought you had bought that that pork, but it was. Uh, I mean, it was had such a distinct flavor that I I remember just thinking like like it, it was unlike any pork that I had ever tasted. Um, well, but it's it's a lot leaner. It's uh it's a lot leaner and it has like a better taste. Um, my kids, uh, the bacon that we that we got from it because one of the the females that I got had just given birth, so she actually had a little bacon, which I was excited about. And my kids absolutely crushed the bacon, whereas it was like pretty overwhelming taste. And uh, the I, I had about four hams done. We had a couple smoked hams, and I actually made that, and that came out pretty good. So uh, we'll you go back. But Baker, and, what's that? You need chops? Oh yeah, we got chops, country ribs. I mean everything. I mean those suckers uh, were you know really really well. I mean when we dressed them and I uh, I skinned them all down and brought them. I mean they were some really really nice looking pigs when I dropped them off at the processor. That's awesome. So, okay. but uh, anytime you want to go, dude, I'm down to go. I'm, I, I got that hunt in. Uh, uh, later in the year for that elk, but I, I still would like to, um, you know, I love shooting pigs. It's such a blast. Yeah, so we need to um, we need to get you a bow so we can take you down to Tucker's this year. He's sent me some trail cam picks. I mean, Jeff Tucker's got a just, I hunted with Jeff last year twice, deer hunted, uh, and then we went, did a turkey hunting trip together, which was really awesome. Um, had a good time there. Uh, but yeah, dude, I'd love to bring a camera crew down to California and Get some of those hogs. I've never, I've never hunted in California. I'd love to hunt the the, okay. the valley. Yeah, we could probably do that again. I mean, I'd love to go out there again. The uh, so when I lived back in Kansas City, uh, I had a bow and I used to practice in my backyard. And uh, you know, there was turkeys and a bunch of different stuff. But um, when I ended up leaving, I ended up selling it. And now I'm regretting kicking myself for selling my bow. I, I think it was a PSC. It was pretty nice. Yeah, I'd definitely like to get another yeah, one. Technology on bows has really come a long way in the past ten years. Um, well, let's let's segue to another interest of Baker's, which is uh, something that I I know is pretty close to his heart, which is the Navy Seal Foundation. Uh, so tell us about your involvement with that. So that's one of that's basically like everything about Kill Cliff starts and ends with the Navy Seal Foundation. So when Todd started the company, his goal was to be the biggest donor of the Navy Seal Foundation. And I know that things like that when people say stuff like that it sounds kind of crazy like oh it's just a ploy or whatever but that's really the truth like uh, we were cutting checks to the Navy SEAL Foundation you know in the beginning when we didn't even have money in the bank to cover them you know we made a lot of sacrifices and we're now and like so Todd was a, a SEAL and then so was Chris Irwin uh, who's the president of the company and um, you know that's why the company was started was to be the biggest donor to the SEAL Foundation and when we sell the company they're going to get a huge check from us. Like so, Todd's goal is to give ten million dollars to the Navy SEAL Foundation, and this year, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, we will. I think it's a couple hundred thousand dollars we're committed to give to them. I think it's three hundred. I don't even know if I'm supposed to be saying that out loud, but <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's we're the first for-profit partner that that the SEAL Foundation's ever had, and it just it means a lot to us, you know, to um, for that to happen. It's and it's a big deal for Todd, and. Um, you know, which it means it's a big deal for me because, like, Todd is not only um, my boss, so to speak. I hate to use that freaking word, but and he's not only my boss, but he's also a very close friend of mine. And whenever you can help friends accomplish goals, you know, I think it's 
it's a it's a big thing. It's a big deal for me, you know, like if you want to lead, you got to serve. And Todd's done such a great job with our company and, you know, for my personal and professional development, it's um it means a lot to me to help my friend accomplish a goal. Yeah, like something that. that he deems very worthwhile. Yeah. Um So and Todd got out of the, Todd got out of the seals I think in 97. So okay. Todd went in in 91 during peacetime and got out in 97 or 98 during yeah. peacetime. So you got to think Put yourself in that guy's shoes. Yeah. A few years later, 9/11 happens. Yeah. You know, and what you were trained to do, and like I guess all your dreams and what you thought it was going to be like to be a Navy SEAL are happening. Yeah. But you're not there. And it's devastating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I, I mean, it's you know, it's uh, it's it's cool. It, it really is. It's in, it's it's a really cool. Do you know? Do you know like uh, what? Just out of curiosity, what the foundation does? Do they help the the families? Families of fallen seals. Okay, gotcha. Um, That's what I figured. And their kids and education and taking care of them and all that stuff. Yeah. So, okay. That's yeah, they fantastic. really like, they really do a phenomenal job. And if you look at a lot of these, I'm not going to name any names, but there's a lot of other charities charities that mm-hmm. you know don't really do meet, all that they can. Yeah, they don't meet that criteria of yeah. uh, truly charitable work and right. like especially when they. Think, you think about where the money's being allocated and stuff. Really, like, mul- like multiple six-figure salaries for yeah. people, you know, that are yeah. running charities, and you know, it's um, yeah, everyone in the uh, Navy SEAL Foundation is connected directly in some capacity to the SEAL community. And that's awesome. So yeah, that's a big thing. That's a big deal for Chris and a big deal for Todd. And you know, like I said, it's a big deal for all of our for our company. It's really cool. That yeah, we can do that. That's awesome. I know one thing also you want to talk about bigger is. Uh, You've been, and you just showed me the video before the show, and we actually had a video of Bobby up on our social media recently struggling with the fucking bamboo bar. And uh, I know you were telling me you did, I don't know, like I 175 one, or something. So Kelsey asked, so I had shoulder surgery uh, in 2012, and like the dummy that I am, I did not do one second of, of physical Rehabilitation. Therapy. Not, not <laughs> one session. And... um. So my, you know, range of motion is like 60% and, and all that stuff. And she asked me, she's like, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I want a bamboo bar. Yeah. That's what I want. And so she got me an earthquake bar, which is, so John, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the first generation bamboo bar, they called it a bamboo bar. And then they had one that had a greater capacity and that was a bandbell bar. And then now the one I have is called an earthquake bar, which is up to 300 pounds. Yeah. So I got it, worked out with it yesterday for the first time. And like, I am... I'm in love with it. Like, yeah. I, I, I think it's awesome. Well, what's ironic about that is we actually worked up to 315 on our bamboo bar. Did you really? See, and yes. I was questioning him because I was like, there's no way you could do, like, so a we, person could do 300 with that. We, we did a 1RM bamboo bar as I just, the fuck up. Just, I swear to God, fucking around. And uh, it was uh, uh, roughly, it, it worked out to just around 315 pounds. And. Uh, at that point, like the thing was bending so much that we were kind of like, I hope this thing doesn't break. But uh, it's I, like a matter of survival. There's no way to like. It's self preservation yeah, at that point. Yeah, exactly. You know? There's no way to gingerly get out of that. Like it's either fucking gonna collapse on your on your stomach and you lose complete control, or you just survive it. You know, uh, that's a one RM bamboo bench. Like that's <laughs> ridiculous. That's so, an idiotic thing that only we would do at HQ. I, I actually, uh, Baker and I were texting when he sent me the picture. One, he, uh, uh, you got to use kettlebells because uh, the kettlebell is obviously not as big as a plate, so you can, you know, and the problem is when you start loading more and more plates, you get into bigger plates that hang too low and you can't get as much range of motion. So you got to obviously use kettlebells. 
And then the other thing, there's a whole kind of like uh, methodology in terms of how to like stack the bands and get them kind of perfectly set up. I mean, we've we've gone through a lot, a lot of trial and error. But uh, my favorite story with the bamboo bar was the first time I was exposed to it was uh, actually out at Westside with Louis Simmons. And so we were out there playing with it a little bit, and I came home and bought one. And we started, you know, using it at least once a week in the training for a long time. And after a while, it, you know, it teaches you how to kind of torque the bar and how to stabilize. And you get real good at it. You start understanding straight bar path, and it just teaches you some very interesting intricacies of the bench press that you just wouldn't normally do unless you used the bamboo bar. So fast forward about a year, maybe a little over a year, I go back out to Westside to visit Louie, and, uh, you know, we, or maybe, yeah, maybe it was about a year, I, I go back out and uh, uh, jump in, I'm training in their groups, and we were doing a, a bench press day, and we floor press, and one of the guys, and I hit a nice number, I think I was right around like 505 on the floor press, and uh, one of the guys is like, hey, do you want to do some uh, bamboo bar bench with me? And I was like, oh yeah, this, sure, looks like a good time. Is it hard? And the guy's like, and at Westside, that's like the goat, like, hey, you invite people in the new, like, oh, do you want to try this bamboo bar? And, you know, anybody that's ever done it day one, your fucking thing's moving around, and people tend to fucking hurt themselves because it'll catch you in the chin and do a bunch of crazy shit. So instantly we lay down, and a guy does it, and, like, you know, you always go first, and when you're good at it, you do it perfectly straight, and think people look at it, and they're like, oh, that doesn't look that hard. And then they lay down, and it's completely different. So the guy goes... And then I lay down, and I kind of, like, get it right into perfect position, and I do it just like him, and I put it up, and the guy, like, looks at me, and I'm like, oh, that felt pretty good. Was, was that right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, let's throw a little more weight on. So we start throwing more weight on. We get to probably, you know, right around 200 pounds, and he lays down and does it, and he comes back, and I bang out a whole bunch of reps, and I kind of put it up, and he looks at me, he's like, you've done this before, haven't you? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, at that point, he, like, walked away kind of, like, a little beaten down that he hadn't got an opportunity to show me up. But uh, <laughs> it's 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 uh it's one of those funny, funny things like and even when I took Bobby and Tex and the guys out there when we went for uh the Elite FTS deal, we swung by and of course they were still getting people with the bamboo bar trick. So it's um it's been pretty good. I mean my favorite memory of the bamboo bar was the day that Nate Austin almost killed himself with the bamboo bar. So <laughs> Nate brings uh, Nate, one of the guys we trained with or trained with, he's one of our buddies, he brings the bar down and as he goes to push, the thing, uh, the kettlebell swung on him, and it actually did like a 90 degree parallel shoot, and it hit him in the chin, and it pinned his head because he had his head too far. Like uh, he he wasn't far enough down on the on the bench. He actually had his head a little far back. He was trying to cheat it. Yeah. And the thing pinned him, and his head went all the way down, and his head was pinned against the 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 the, the side bottom of the bench press. And I saw it, and he was stuck there, and it was, like, banging his head. And I started laughing, and we did take it for a second. And he was, like, screaming legs in there. We finally lifted off him. And uh, he that almost was, died. That was the last day he ever bamboo bent. Yeah, you know? he, he would never touch it again. And, um, you know, frankly, we shouldn't have let him go. We should have just let him die. <laughs> it would have just saved us. But uh, I, I said to Baker, we should do something, like film something, where we actually work up. To, I'll give him a little bit of uh, opportunity to get used to it. We'll come up and do a one-arm bamboo bar bench. You have your you have your own version of the uh th that same like the experience you had at Westside. You do at like Power Athlete too, which is using the camber bar. When I first moved out there, <laughs> when I first fucking moved out there, I think I did I think I did on a straight bar like a like a couple of sets at 135 and then you told me to come over, you put 225 on the camber bar and you were like it's fine, I'll spot you and you were like just do it for like 5 and I'd never used this bar before, and, like, I, it almost fucking buried me, and you basically had to bicep curl my torso, and then you were like, oh, like, and that was the first rep. The thing is, Good rep, good rep, get him. 
Yeah, you were like, just get four more. And I'm like, but, like, I'm... I and the best is Callie never showed up to train with us until, like, three years later. Yeah. And, and, and it was at, like, uh, the, the 12th where we could go in there and do bicep curls and shit. But, yeah, uh, finally. Uh, get myself so, on a Smith machine. <laughs> so we, we have a 14-inch camber bar, and that's very, very similar to the bamboo bar in that, like, you set up, you, you get your hands into position, and you basically go straight up and down because if there's any swing on the bar, that thing will fucking pin you and shoot yeah. you forward. Uh, which is ironic, seeing as Nate almost killed himself using that bar, too. He got to the bottom, he fucking dumped his chest, and the whole thing swung forward, and he ran forward, and the bar hit the mono. He continued to go, and the bar shot backwards. And uh, at that point, I was like, wow. I, but at that point, I was like, we shouldn't train with Nate anymore, or maybe we should just kill him early. But uh, he almost he's almost died numerous times. Poor Nate. Poor Nate. Um, so, I mean, so, Baker, like, are you going to continue to train with it? Is it, is it, Absolutely. like... Absolutely. I can't wait. Like, I, I'll do it. I'll use it again tomorrow. Yeah. I've got to go on, I've got to do a bike ride today. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So, tell us, uh, tell us what your training's like with that, this, explain to him what you're doing with, uh, with Kelsey with the bike ride. So, I have two things going on. So, I turned 40 last Thursday, <laughs> which puts me in the master's category of USAPL for powerlifting. And CrossFit, right? Uh, that's what I was going to say. And CrossFit. <laughs> Absolutely not. No fucking way. So um, the, the Masters CrossFit doesn't look that hard. <laughs> Please. I don't like being out of breath when I work out. Like let's just let let's get that out in the front. So I've got so the state record in Washington for USAPL is back squat uh, is five eleven, bench is three eighty nine, and then the deadlift is five eighty nine. Total is fourteen forty nine. So really, at, yeah. at what body weight? Yeah. At what because body weight? USAPL, like, so what happens is you have a lot of guys that, like, kids or whatnot, they'll go into a gym and they'll get into powerlifting. And it's very rare that you find a powerlifting gym that does USAPL. Yeah. Because you've got guys in there running gear, and it's hard for, like, some 12, you know, 10, 12, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old kid going into a gym and want to do USAPL where they it's drug-free, they test you, mm-hmm. and it's you lift on commands. Yeah. When they're surrounded by people that make fun of it and, you know, back squat way more than that but they're they're doing different stuff yeah and so a lot of people just don't do you do usapl so um i want to take those records down there's a, a meet this saturday um and that i can walk into and and get the back squat record with for reps i mean that'll Perfect. be easy that'll be easy uh bench and deadlift i gotta work on those because i haven't are you gonna it. are you gonna do it is are you making a formal announcement right now you're coming out to do that meet on saturday are you going to it? No, I'm just saying. I'm in your corner, Baker. If you go, fucking, I'll bring, like... No, but it's a 5'11 back squat. Like, I don't need anybody in my corner. Like, I just walk That's in there it? and do it and leave. Yeah. Cole? Is, uh, is, 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 that with rep, is that with wraps? So, or is no. that just belt? No, no just raw no, everything. Raw. Knee sleeves, belt, so That's it. That's all they love. Knee sleeves and belt, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I won't wear knee sleeves. Okay. Just a belt. Okay. Um, a belt around each knee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no. Like a powerlifting belt or like a dress belt? A four-inch. Uh, it's, it's a <laughs> J.C. Penny leather belt. Alligator. Okay. 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 Like I usually like a one-inch like uh, yeah. Texas or, belt level. Yeah. <laughs> you know that would actually help. He could probably push his belly off that thing. Yeah. So you. So I got that. But at the same time, so Kelsey signed us up to do a hundred-mile bike ride. Uh, to raise money for uh, multiple sclerosis in September. At one time? Over the course of how many days? One day, <laughs> one ride. Wow. Is it downhill? Uh, no, it's Washington, dude. It's hilly here. Are you going to wear a beach, uh, cru- like a beach cruiser? 
No, a road no. bike. I used to, I did have a very, I have a S-Works Tarmac. I have a very, very nice These road bike. These guys don't know about any bicycle. No, I, know the, I know the Tarmac. That's the one where that has the motor on it. No, that's the one with the bell on the handles. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the right. streamers, like Callie's bike. You. You're idiots. So, yeah. all right. So I used to race bikes years ago, 2005, 2006 to 2009, 2004 too. So Kelsey's never ridden a road bike. So she signs us up for this 100-miler, and it's like, all right, well, we got to get miles in your legs. And, I mean, I haven't ridden a road bike since, you know, God, it's been six years. And so we're, we're trying to average. I'm trying to put 100 miles in her legs um, each week, and then on the weekends we're going to try to put 40 in on Saturday. And um, so it's like powerlifting and then teaching her how to ride a road bike. So we've, we started riding. She, we got her a bike and all that stuff. And, like, Kelsey just got back from the games, like, her cardio, I don't even have any cardio, and she's obviously in shape. And like, I find myself waiting on her on the bike. It's like, okay, speed it up, because these bikes are not designed for comfort, and they're not designed to be ridden slowly. Like, the slower you ride these road bikes, the more uncomfortable they are. So, just it's a kind of a both opposite ends of the spectrum: powerlifting, hundred mile bike ride. Well, Baker, we're gonna need some photo proof of you riding because it's Spandex. one because one uh i don't know if they make a helmet big enough <laughs> i knew this to fit, to, to I, knew, I knew and that when also, i came to this show that this shit was going to come up that your confidence also riding it into a headwind i mean they don't call it a headwind for nothing with baker <laughs> Like, that shit was like a sail. I don't know how. I mean, do, do you have to wear, like, a shark fin? I, or I, you know like what? A, I, speculate, uh... I speculate that Baker is going to be drafting off of Kelsey the entire time. False. Kelsey <laughs> will, if she can keep up, will sit on my wheel the entire time. <laughs> there will Ooh. never be a time when I draft off of her. I'm you're the just, bike rider. You're just Lance Armstrong. She's just going to ride, ride, ride. Oh, man. It's yeah. going to... Blood doping and all. It's going to be an experience. It's going to be an experience. Yeah, you so, guys... So wait a minute. Wait, so she competed in the games, and her level of fitness isn't good for something like a hundred mile bike ride. Um, it's just being comfortable on the bike. Okay, all right. We'll have to we'll we'll have to hit up Dave Castor about putting that in next year. Mm Mm-hmm. I would love to see that. It sounds like like you have to ride these road bikes. Yeah, they have a velodrome, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, They should ride road bikes. Totally. From like Carson to San Diego and back. They already have the assault bike. It's the same thing, basically. Uh, could you put Miles in the assault bike as a as a training for that? No. <laughs> no, because like what a about a spin bike... class? What about a spin class? Could you guys do like, like spin off classes? the saddle stuff? Off the no, saddle. No, because that when you sit on those bikes, you pedal in squares and you're not moving yourself. So it's you're just spinning your your wheels. I mean your legs around. Um, yeah, but they play techno music. Yeah, you guys. You have y'all ever done a flywheel? Have you ever done a flywheel? What's a flywheel? Like a like a soul cycle flywheel. I have I have one time, only once though, because it was horrible. It hurts my butt to sit on that thing. Yeah, my brothers do that. You, and I won't I won't do it. What are you talking about? The butt, like it hurts your butt. Those seats are very uncomfortable. It doesn't hurt. You don't sit on it on your ass. You sit on the sandbar. I I never. Your grundle. No, maybe I'm not doing it. Maybe I'm not sandbar. doing it. Right? I'm going to need, like, a video tutorial. Sandbar is the space between, you know, the front and the back. The sandbar. Oh, my God. You know, like, when you have low tide and you have the low tide, you have, like, a tidal pool and then a sandbar in the ocean? Oh, my God. No, I get it. That's what the sandbar is. I get it. I understand. 
Jack. Baker, but you probably have like uh, uh, like padded gym shorts, right, or like some form of like padded spandex. I wear the proper cycling attire. Yeah. <laughs> Tight. I wear the proper. Remember movie Breakfast Club? Yeah. Oh yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I, 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 dude, I, I knew the reference as soon as you said it. Well, most people don't get that shit, you know. They're like, I don't know. What well, there's also most people listening to this podcast aren't 40 years old. <laughs> That's true. We need to get your uh, demographic up there. I was going to say, uh, you know, you start breaking out, like, uh, a break, uh, breakfast club lines, you know, like, next thing you're going to know, you're going to talk about, like, miss the bull, get the horns. So, Baker, what is, uh, what are some of your favorite, like, movies? I think we we like to ask this question because it helps uh, give insight into the person that we're really speaking to. Hot Tub Time Machine, um, the movie Snatch. Never-ending story. I'm going to give you guys a very... Interesting movie that if you like the movie Nugget. Snatch, you'll love. Okay. So the movie Snatch was based on a documentary called East End British Gangster. So it's a documentary. It is amazing because you see the real life characters that the characters in the movie Snatch were based after. Okay. Like Bricktop, Governor, like it. Gorgeous the George. Oh my yeah. God! It is so amazing. It's 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 amazing. Yeah. It's phenomenal. That's awesome. Um, Snatch I'm kind of a fan of Rock and Roll a little bit more. I, I like Snatch, but Rock and Roll is one of my personal yeah. favorites. Yeah, but watch that documentary, uh, gang, uh, East End, uh, British Gangster. That's a great documentary. You'll like it. Um, those two, it's a tough question to ask. I know. Favorite That's why movies? I ask it. I'm about the hard-pressing questions, the serious news that everyone needs to hear. I what thought... about, like, Pump Up, like a movie, like, okay, so not just enjoyable, but, like, Something that gets you like jazzed, like makes you feel like, man, like I want to get like fuck something up, you know. Vision Quest. Vision Quest. The movie Rad. Running Running Man. The movie Rad. Haven't seen that. Oh, really? Wow. The documentary about. Uh, yeah, when he nails the airwalk, John, or the first try, yeah. that, that gets you fired up. Dude, that's old school. Yeah. Denny chimes in. Finally. <laughs> Denny's out there on his BMX bike. Dude, yeah, man, like. That has uh, Lori Laughlin in it, the girl from uh, like Full House, right? Do you guys oh, know, do you know so, the dramatic, the, the soundtrack? The, the you know what? Remember what the guy's oh, my, name was? Crew Taylor, right? So my, crew... my my buddy Rick was one of the 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 writers in that movie. Shut no up. way! I swear it. And like he, he he called bullshit on, or I called bullshit on it, and he was like, "You want me to go get my bike?" I was like, "Prove it." He, all of a sudden, he like pulls out of his closet this like little BMX bike. And proceeds to go out the neighborhood and tear it up, rad style. I was like, oh my god, you were in the movie. I Dude, he's like, I was a uh, uh, you know like young professional with this, and uh, I was one of the uh, the stunt extras, one of the uh, one of the guys in the crew writing. I was like, oh my god, I love that movie. That movie's Dude. right up there with uh... Gleaming the Cube. Gleaming yes. the Cube, dude. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like this is. We were, you were just talking about, like, 40-year-olds knowing this kind of information, but, like, this was the shit in the 80s. Luke, are you even, are, is any of this uh, computing with you right now? 100%, and I'd, love, I'd like to add thrashing to that mix. Oh, thrashing? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, Absolutely. now we're, so, Baker, we had Zach uh, Evanish on, and he knew the movie The Search for Animal Chin. Hell yes. <laughs> All right. Boy, fuck yeah. Dude. Absolutely. You just went up a notch on my cool meter. Oh my god, dude, that's back when like a like like in skateboarding, like the ho ho was the shit, right? Like Tony Hawk was like 12 years old in that movie. Huh? 
Tony Hawk was like 12 years old in that movie. In, yeah, uh, Cavalero and Christian Asoli and Tony Hawk and uh, there you go, the whole Paolo Peralta. Yeah, like, yeah Bones Brigade. The Bones Brigade. You guys don't even remember their freaking half their skate movies, uh, Skate or Die. I don't know if you remember those, but they had yep. all those like skate movies that were kind of like the Warren Miller type movies. And uh, to this day, I still love Warren Miller movies. Somebody recently asked on the forums, like, hey, does anyone on Power Athletes still like skate? And I mean, I was the only one that really responded, and I was like, no, I don't think so. I think it's like just kind of an extinct, uh, well, it's a becoming. There's a connection, right? I mean, like, so the the best skateboarding shoes in the '80s were Vans. Absolutely. Okay. Right, and Power Athlete and Vans kind of had this mutual love, right? Well, yeah. that's, because, that's because we're based out of Southern California. Yeah. Right? Okay. So so a little bit of history. When I was a kid, uh, the most coveted shoe was Vans. Even like years later, yeah, like it's still like everybody's like, oh, I wanted Air Jordans, all this. It was like checkerboard Vans were like the the coolest fucking shoe you could have. Absolutely. Well, but in a practical sense, they're built for lateral durability. So if you do any sort of lateral drive off of the shoe, like how a skater would bail, yeah. they're just more durable in that sense versus like some of the more popular, we'll just call them training shoes, trainers. Uh, you blow those fuckers out. If you do any sort of shuttle runs, you'll blow them out. In we one have had numerous people come to our CrossFit football seminar that have twisted ankles, uh, rolled, uh, popped calves, had a lot of injuries. We've had one ACL, yeah. and uh, they always come from usually some form of trainer shoe. Some... Like beat-up footwear. Well, supposedly even, I mean, even brand-new shoes that you guys would probably know is what they would consider as, like, training footwear, you know, uh, and we've seen people bust their ankles, and we've seen a whole host of uh, problems mm -hmm. associated with them. The one shoe we've never seen anybody hurt themselves wearing are Vans. Chucks. And Chuck, uh, Chucks, you know, uh, are, can be a little bit narrow sometimes, mm -hmm. and uh, we've had some problems. I know guys have struggled with running, but for the most part, the Vans have always been pretty good. You're right, John. Those are narrow shoes, and I have pretty small feet, and they still, like, really are too tight for me. Yeah, I, I have uh, uh, one set of uh, Chucks that I, I got when we were training out at Westside. I went and bought a, a pair because that's like Louis' official shoe. And I think I wore them, and I was like, God, these things feel so... And I don't have wide feet either, so I ended up uh, wearing Vans, and Louis, I know, was against them a little bit. And then uh, when he looked at them, he was like, oh, okay, they're okay. So he even, you know, he, he's got some reason for why they love them. But, uh, I, you know, uh, Vans, one, they're 35 bucks, mm -hmm. unless they're my daughter's shoes, which are $36, which doesn't make any sense because they're one-tenth of size. <laughs> and um, they're easy to get, and like you know, they, you break them into that perfect point. But I would think uh, of anything I've seen, they they're pretty good. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about um, some stuff that you have coming up in the future, Baker. What's on your agenda for the next few months? Uh, Baker and I's hunting trip. Hunting. Baker and I are going on several hunting trips. All right. Besides you, besides you girls getting together and finally getting to hang out. Um. So we have. Uh, the Granite Games coming up in September, which is in Minnesota, and then the one that I'm really jazzed about is the Cascade Classic, Kill Cliff, the Kill Cliff Cascade Classic in Seattle, October the 10th and 11th, which is a two-day event. Um, one day is individual, the second day is team, but which we will be fe featuring a uh, CrossFit football. Um, yeah, I think we're going to be at that one, right? Yeah, and uh, it's it's cool because if you look at the events in the Pacific Northwest, there are not there are no marquee events here. And our experience with like the Granite Games or the ECC in Boston 
um, that we sponsor. Those events, you create those events and it gives the local affiliate community and the local CrossFit community something to take ownership in um, and they can get behind. And that was why I wanted to have an event in Seattle. One, I live here. And two, uh, was to create something really cool and really special for the local affiliate and athlete pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's awesome. Like the, the whole community is getting behind it. I think we, we, the interest was so great. Well, what we, we did, what we didn't want to do was create an event with, you know, a thousand athletes in it. So we whittled it down to what was manageable because we want the experience to be really special for the athletes. And, um, so we did a, I think we had close to a thousand people sign up for our online qualifier. We're doing three workouts to, for people to earn a spot to come and compete. And then we're bringing in some of our sponsored athletes. Uh, I think a dozen, not a dozen, I'm sorry, uh, six games, female athletes, and then another six males. And, uh, it's going to be awesome. Um, want to try to pair up some of the games athletes and put them on teams with some local individuals. And then, um, I got some of the, the Northwest regional athletes that went to the games last year and the year before we created a team with them. And then some of the athletes that from Canada, mm-hmm. Canada West that went to the games last year, we created a team there. That's cool. So now we have like a Northwest team, yeah. and a Canada team, like a, a, a Northwest region and a, a Canada West region yeah, team like that can go head to head. Spicy international yeah. drama. Yeah. So I mean, we're not like trying to compete with, you know, HQ or the invitational or any of that stuff. That's not the purpose at all. Right. The, the the point is just to create something that the local community can look forward to and we'll be bringing in athletes from all over the country and there'll be athletes traveling here from all over the country to compete in it and just kind of, you know, do something. And, you know, it's it's funny with, you know, these events, you know, we, you know I say we were doing it for the community and, you know, some people would hear that and, and think, oh, you know, it's, it's trying to make money or raise money off of it. We actually lose our asses on these events. Mm-hmm. We, like, the, the thought of making money doing a, an event is comical at best. Like, yeah. I mean, flying all of our games athletes and putting them up in hotels and all that stuff, and then the cost to rent the venue and everything, like, you know, we lose our butts. It's, but it's just something cool to get everybody in one place. We're going to have a big, huge cookout on Friday, uh, Cascade Farms which is down South Washington. Mm-hmm. It's an organic farm. Um, he's donating a bunch of food. Uh, John, John, the like the pork chops that I sent you that photo of the other day, like those came from uh, from his farm. He brought That's me a cool. bunch. I feel of, like I've heard of that. Yeah, okay. it's cool. Um, the, uh, uh, Baker, I was going to tell you. Thanks for uh, uh, tagging me in that. Um, my personal, and I'm just telling you, my my best experience with pork is just smoked garlic salt. That's what we did. Yeah, I mean it's 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 crazy. People are like, oh, what about a recipe? I'm like, pork only needs a little bit of garlic salt, and if you have enough time, a dry brine is probably one of the best things to do. Just brine it, do like six to twelve hours of brine, and just you know pull it out, let it get to room temp, and then throw it on the smoker. So yeah, I talked to Kelsey about that, and I was like, yeah, she's like, I called my dad and got a recipe from him, and I was like, yeah, well, I talked to John, and he gave me a recipe, and she's like, well, I want to go with what my dad said, and I was like. John's much bigger than your father. He obviously <laughs> knows way more than your dad does about cooking pork chops. Like sure that's that, all he eats is yeah, meat. Yeah, well, that that logic is flawless. Yeah. It absolutely. Uh, Kelsey's dad's a big dude, isn't he? No. <laughs> no. John, He's... I don't have any friends bigger than you, John. For so the record, like... Baker's looking around the room to like compare Kelsey's dad to. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's like he's like six one. He's like a two. How many kill cliff cans tall is he? He's a one can at a time guy. You're a three can at a time guy. Dude, I, I was dying. I, I didn't realize that those cans look so small in my hands. And then people are like, that guy's got hands like toasters. I'm like, I don't even have big hands. <laughs> so funny. Who doesn't have big hands? You do. John? John does. Yeah. No, uh, when I was at the combine, I remember they went to measure my hands. And they were like, oh, you got little hands. You got to wear gloves when you play. And I was like. And then uh, I, I was like, wait, I didn't think my hands were that small. And then the dude next to me had, like, the largest hands that they'd ever fucking ever measured. And the guy, uh, like, literally, like, a triple X glove, he couldn't even get over. And I'm like, oh, so my God. You, John, you may not have long fingers, but your palm is, is like a 14-ounce fillet. I mean, like, it's it's multiple inches thick. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, bigger uh, than any donut I've eaten. <laughs> donuts. <laughs> yeah, but we're going to have a CrossFit football presence there. So I think Absolutely. we uh, – so that'd be awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. And Baker was actually asking me uh, how the CrossFit football total came to be what it was. And, um, you know, I think, like, I, I'm sure that, you know, there might be a story behind it, but I think it's pretty, uh, like, pretty standard power lifts plus our, plus our one, you know, dynamic version of the lift, which is the power clean. That's, that's I guess, the best indication of you know well-rounded power athlete type status. Uh, John, do you have any like thing you want to add on that? Who invented well, it? Who invented the well, CrossFit football total? So when CrossFit, I guess, uh, approached me about doing CrossFit football, I had to sit down and create some real basic templates and start understanding some stuff about training beginners. And because like, I felt like that was my weakest point about uh, training beginners, because the, the program that I did as a young kid uh, was probably the worst programming for a beginner because it was basically just singles and some like, you know, some, so a little bit of reps, but it was a straight up powerlifting program because I trained with these old power lifters and they were all advanced lifters and we just jumped into the group and, you know, hey, uh, work up to a single and, and get out and, I, you know, not knowing anything about physiology at the time and, and then realizing that like that training uh, while I got stronger, it could have been done a lot better, and I, I realized there were shortcomings. So when CrossFit approached me about doing CrossFit football, I knew I needed to, to really, uh, you know, almost go back to school a little bit and understand uh, about how to train beginners. And so the one person that I know who works with beginners better than anybody on the planet, Mark Richto, he has a book called Starting Strength, which is about training beginners. So I went out to Wichita Falls and hung out with Rick for. Uh, a fair amount of time and really sat down and, uh, you know, what's amazing is you can look at like physiology, you can look at science, you can look at studies and you can look at all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, simple anecdotal, uh, observation sometimes is some of the most insightful shit I've ever been around. And even like, you know, where we've got, you know, been really using the linear progression. I, I talked to Rip and I was like, Hey, you know, this basic linear progression you use, like, was this something Bill Starr came up with? And Rip was like, fuck no. This was something I observed in the gym uh, that we realized that a, a relatively unadapted, untrained nervous system could add weight to the bar each training session. And like you know, we went through you know kind of why it worked and intramuscular versus intramuscular coordination and how the whole thing kind of played out. And I went back and I you know pulled out some Zaskorski and some uh, some super training and went through and found all the passages on what he had observed of kids, beginning athletes training in his gym. So. Uh, 
we sat down and I put together, you know, kind of, hey, this is what I want to do for my intermediate advanced templates. And, uh, you know, would it be cool if I took a version of starting strength of linear progression but kind of adapted to what I wanted to do it more than, you're, than, than what you're doing? And so Rick kind of looked at it and said, oh, I think that looks good. And as we were kind of looking at it, I was like, well, you know, this is how I want to cycle the program. This is it. And he goes, well, you're going to have to have a test. You need to have some form of, like, culmination for people to trade. You need some form of, like, total type thing, like they had the CrossFit total, and, uh, you know, there the CrossFit total is a press, a deadlift, and a squat, and um, I was like, well, let's do a CrossFit football total, other than the fact that I would like to do a bench press and a power clean, because you need to be able to pull heavy, you need to pull dynamic, you should be able to bench, you should be able to squat, so we kind of tailored a CrossFit football total into that as kind of a, a, a training stimulus, and more important, a training goal for the CrossFit football program. And I was like, that's great. I mean, you know, I know it's going to be a grind for people to be able to put together four lifts. So I limited them to like three attempts, and you got a certain amount of time to finish. you got to do them in a certain order. And um, that's really how it was born, and we did it, and people really seemed to like it. And there's been, um, you know, a couple regionals before they became standardized that actually used across the football total. And it's always been a, a really good display because, you know, you run into people that are great only lifters that might not be able to clean as much. And can they squat, but can they bench? And it's just, it was very, very well-rounded and people have really seemed to like it. So that's the short story. Yeah, and through our large population, I guess called sample size or test group, it's indicative of base level of strength, yes. right? And just kind of what we use about, or the, the primary lifts that, you know, someone's like, hey, am I strong? We ask them, hey, how much do you weigh? And then what? What are your lifts through those categories? What is your squat? What is your deadlift? What is your bench press? What is your power clean? Yeah, because I... So that's have, like the ultimate baseline test. Yeah, we're... It, it is. It, it, it's, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it really is. I mean, we, we don't use it as much with our beginners. So the reason that we kind of get away with before, originally the original, the original template was written that we would have a CrossFit football total every six weeks. Um, uh, that became not as... And if you go back and you were to go back in the annals of the whole deal, that's how it kind of originally played out. But I started stretching out more and more and more. And the reason being is I didn't want beginners testing 1RMs. So as I got more adept at working with beginners, and we ran this program, I mean, we everything you see across the football and power athlete and field strong and Jack Street and all the different programs we put out, if you don't know them, get on there and Google them right now and, and, uh, and go with them, are actually tested programs that we have not only tested, evaluated, used, and, you know, seen great success and then hence put them out. But that uh, original program uh, at the time, you know, when I came to do the – or when I was in the process of putting across the football together, I tested that amateur program um, on one of our young lifters. And I watched him go from a back squat of 165 pounds for a set of five in 20 weeks up to a set uh, – to a single at 405. So at about – he put 200 pounds in a squat in 20 weeks, and I think, like, uh, week 19, he squatted 365 for a set of five, and then I finally was like, let's work up to a 1RM. And so he didn't touch a 1RM until he got to 20 weeks. And the reason being is to really efficiently lift a 1RM, you need a very in-tune, well-trained, adapted nervous system where the whole body fires at once and you can really kind of push against the bar. And, uh, you know, for beginners that have that unadapted, untrained nervous system, five reps seems to really be pretty good. Now, I mean, we've used fours, we've used sixes, we've even used sevens. Five is just a really easy universal number, and uh, we've done it with other things. It is and, the um, shittiest number in the world. <laughs> well, well it's, uh, it's, it's God Almighty. I, I think hate it. I think four is the shittiest number. Uh, we we have a whole holy program that Bob Takano and I put together based on fours, fours. And, and 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 I grew to fucking hate fours. Yeah. 
uh, with a passion, but there's something about a five. I mean, we've done sevens, we've done sixes, we've done, and, but for some reason, the five rep max, uh, it's dependent on the athlete. It's somewhere around 85 to 90 percent of your one RM is a, is a true five rep max, which puts you at a high enough percentage to really kind of keep driving that adaptation. It's not so high that it's going to negatively affect you with you know overloading the central nervous system with too many lifts over 90%. I mean, it really falls within this kind of like magic number that puts us exactly the percentage we're looking to rate at. And uh, it's been very, very beneficial. And then we start kind of stripping it down. And so I think, uh, you know, to quote Mark Ripto, uh, five's, five is the most powerful number on the planet. That's what he told me once. And I, I laughed. I thought it was a, I thought it was pretty hysterical. But ever five, since then, boys like fives. We, we were sitting there drinking beers. He did a, a seminar at Balboa. And we were at this like, uh, little uh, uh, burger place that has these like twenty dollar hamburgers, and like it's like a boutique craft beer deal that it's called Crow Burger. So I took Rip there, and there was something inherent, like disagreement. Like there was something like worth fighting about the fact that they were charging nineteen ninety nine for a hamburger, and like Rip being from Wichita Falls is like, y'all pay twenty dollars for a hamburger? Are you fucking shitting me? Like he was so fucking mad, and then they bring the beer over, and of course they weren't like sixteen ounce pints; they were like twelve ounce glasses. He lives in Texas. No, this is in Newport Beach. No, what I'm saying, Rip lives in Texas. Yeah, he lives in Wichita Falls, okay, which yeah. is about an hour an hour north of yeah, Dallas. That's, that's normal behavior of a person from Texas. Oh yeah, he he's just like fucking outraged, and uh, like the fact that they would charge twenty dollars for a ham. He's like, it's a hamburger with ground beef. I'm like, yeah, well, that's I mean, like just... when I lived in when I lived in New York City, and I'd go to like the the Green Market and stuff on uh, the Farmers Market on Saturdays in an East Village, and they'd have venison. For twenty dollars a pound, and it's like, <laughs> are you shitting me? Yeah, I was like, are you people insane? I wouldn't pay fifty cents for a pound of venison. I uh, uh, Rip raised a couple cows a couple years ago, and he he has a pretty good plot of land, and he raised all these like hundred percent grass fed cows, and like really like raised some really beautiful cows. Like drove up, got them, brought them back, and raised them up. And so he called me up, and he's like, hey, uh, do you want one of my cows? I was like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll buy it, whatever you want. He's like, oh, you buy it, you pay for it, you raise it, and then um, just pay my uh, uh, processor. So, so the cows are ready. He took it out, and uh, the guy called me, and I was like, you know what? I, I, I know that it's going to kill the volume of this thing, but I want you to hang them for like 40, 45 days. You know, normally they, they, they don't hang things for even 30 days. So yeah. we got some 40-day dry-aged deal. The guy packaged it up and put it on dry ice and overnighted it to me. And it was uh, – I, I had a deer from Texas overnighted to me uh, last year. Not cheap. Well, it, it wasn't cheap, but the meat uh, per pound was half as much as what I would pay at Whole Foods. Oh, yeah. We had some um, – we were, we were bird hunting down in Bolivia two years ago and uh, had some grass-fed beef, local grass-fed beef down there. Out of control. Like really Dude. truly grass-fed beef like most people in this country like – have never had it. They don't understand it, and the meat is completely different. Grass-fed cattle, you know, for for meat stock, um, is out of this world. Yeah, I think around here they say like the technically call, and I'm in like the Midwest, Chicago area, um, that you can sell and beef and call it grass-fed beef if it if it like grazes in a grass pasture maybe a month out of its 
a specific time. Yeah, you know, that's, like, uh, it's that's really cool. freaking water that shit down as far that's, as that's uh, like grass finished, and there's a lot of like kind of stuff. If it's certified grass fed, then what they have to do is actually have a number on the cow and they have to tie it. It's pretty involved because for for uh, Well Food Co, we had to do all that for the beef. But uh, I was in Nicaragua. And I know this sounds random, but we went to Nicaragua with uh, Rob Wolf and his wife. Amazing, uh, my wife and I did. amazing and, beach down there. Oh, so so we we go to this beach resort, and uh, they were like, there was a, a kitchen, so we're like, oh, let's drive to the town, and we'll go to some like market, we'll buy a bunch of stuff. So we go into the market, Rob and I do, and there's all this like, killer fruit. We go over to the meat counter, and um, all the meat, like the most expensive meat, was all like the fattiest meats. And over there, I like looked, I was like, well, you know, obviously it was the the uh, the tenderloin, you know, the fillets. And um, I was like pointing to him, like, how much for that? And the lady kind of like scoffed at me. It was like the equivalent of like 75 cents US a pound. And I bought like six of these like four pound, like massive loins that came out to be like $9 or something. And we were like so excited. We like loaded them up. We were there like six days. We literally ate like two or three pounds of meat per meal of this like most amazing like uh, like fillet I've ever had and um, they we like asked them a little bit and they were like oh yeah that's all locally raised and like you know we, we drove by the the farm where they get it all I mean it, it was like the, the cheapest thing for them to feed them was grass they just kind of let them out to pasture my brother but, uh, and I were in a we were duck hunting in northern Nicaragua uh, 2006 maybe 2007 and uh, every lunch every dinner we had was steak and to this day as far as the best food I've ever had on a on a hunting trip, um, it was that trip, and all we ate was beef every single meal. It was it was out of this world, so good. Yeah, I mean, so, we, we had... so rot really adds to the flavor. You know, going back to what you're saying, John, about that hanging that cow for 45 days. Rot, as in rot. As in, yeah, like the longer you let that meat just kind of like rot, it adds to the flavor so, of the... So like w when the proteins start to break down... Rot is a very negative word. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of Gladiator. Remember the, the, uh, the, word the Russell Crowe Gladiator, not the old school boxing movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. If anybody out there didn't know that there was actually two move two Gladiator movies. <laughs> the first Gladiator movie was James... Marshall and Cuba Gooding Jr. Let's just set the record straight, right? Are we all clear on that? Yes, so the second one is yeah. like Russell Crowe, right? Yeah, break the hand in the forehead. <laughs> when Russell Crowe gets sold, uh, that guy's like, your crop is rotten. And he goes, rot adds to the flavor. So right? what like, uh, if you understand how to process meat, what they do is they dry age where they hang it in the environment and it actually ages the meat and part of the uh, you know, like the the mold and you know that disintegration process. I mean, that's what dry that's what dry aging is. It's actually the the meat is disintegrating and like starting to decompose, and that's what adds to the flavor and like ca like causes the meat to actually break down and soften. Yeah. We um you know most places by California law, I think the longest they can hang is like 21 days because after that it's considered like that's I don't in, know, that's in a that's in a in a in a walk-in cooler like they're not yeah yeah, yeah it's it's yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's right. not like it's in a cool environment and they hang the meat and uh but like if we were at a Luke where were we at we Argentina to, yeah were we in Argentina. Uh, which one? Which Best one? steaks in the world. Mm -hmm. We yeah we we went to a steakhouse that had 60 day dry age. Where was that? Oh, uh, yeah, I was there actually. 
Was that you and I, Kelly? Yeah, I think that I think that was you and I. I can't we, I can't remember where. We have uh, the one thing about uh, anybody listening to us that has aspirations of potentially coming to work for Power Athlete or CrossFit Football. The food. The one the one thing we do is we eat. Like when we go some places, like Callie was, uh, we, we went to Madrid and Callie was like so happy. She's like, oh my God, I'm so happy you're here. She's like, I know we're going to find some amazing restaurants. And we absolutely fucking crushed it. Yeah, but, if I was with Luke, we'd be searching yeah, for the places. Unless we travel with Nana. We go, to, we go to Chipotle, we get double rice, half meat, out. and it lasts the whole week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Callie and I, like one of the guys at our seminar in Madrid was like, it's kind of a foodie, kind of local critic, set us up for this uh, restaurant. So we go into this restaurant. Like, we don't even order. The guy, like, took our menus, just proceeds to bring this food. Uh, it was uh, one of the fucking best meals I've ever had was in Madrid at this place. I mean, and we would have never even known to walk in there. It just, like, looked like some little local place. I mean, yeah. the food, unreal. Yeah, it was, so. a, was an amazing experience. Um, guys, this, this, has, this podcast episode has really run the gamut. I wasn't expecting to be educated in so many, like, different niche topics. Definitely hunting is a huge chunk of this. So I will market this to you, to all the, the potential hunters out there. Uh, but, uh, you know, Baker, if, if people want to find out more about um, the competition, the Cascade Classic, how can they do that? Uh, Just find it, Google that shit? Google that shit. Okay. It's, wor- it's worth a Google. Nice. And um, and obviously, if, uh, if people haven't heard or tried Kill Cliff, Get yourself some. It's uh, it should be literally at every GN- convenience store. Every probably. GNC, every vitamin shop. We're going into 400 Sam's Clubs here in about a month. Uh, I was in like a, I was in like a uh, flying J or yep. something, driving to South Dakota, and there was Kill yep. Cliff at the gas station. Yep. You're everywhere, and um, and for people like you know, if uh, if you do purchase, remember that a huge part of that goes to the Navy SEAL Foundation, which, uh, you know, these guys are big proponents for, and it's obviously a very worthwhile cause. Um, but you guys, I think we're going to have to wrap up because we're, we're running like close to two hours now. And, uh, I know Baker's a busy man. His, his phone is going absolutely insane. Um, so we definitely appreciate him taking the time not only to meet in person to do this, but, uh, but to, you know, Spread the knowledge and the bigger love. And you, my walkout song, if I had to pick oh, one today. Oh, if you today, had a walkout song, like walk out to the ring, walk out to obviously the powerlifting. Harder league. Than You Think by Public Enemy. Okay. All right. Public Enemy. Harder, I did not the, the, the song is Harder Than You Think by Public Enemy. I didn't I didn't see that coming from you, but I'm going to – I don't know the song like right off the top of my head. But Public Google Enemy, it. that doesn't sound like something that well, I would imagine. country. I'm a big country music guy. Okay. All right. So I have enjoyed it. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, thanks for coming, Baker. It's good, great to chat, and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. Hopefully I will see you soon. We're going to arrange our hunting, our hog trip. <laughs> oh, fucking it. All right, guys. Take it easy. Later. Bye. Bye. Thanks a lot. Baker, you have to say bye. Bye. But like this. Oh, bye. Yeah, you heard it. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Find out everything you need to know about Killcliff and the Navy SEAL Foundation by heading to www.killcliff.com. This little recovery drink is not just helping you test positive for awesome, but it's also helping the families of fallen SEALs recover in a much, much bigger way. If you'd like to become best friends with Baker, all you need to do is find him on social media. On Facebook, he's Baker Levitt, and on Instagram, he's at BlackBaker. The Kill Cliff Cascade Classic is right around the corner on October 10th and 11th, so be sure to Google that if you want to come and spectate 
or if you're interested in getting involved as a vendor or a judge or anything like that, just go ahead and check out that website. Again, Google Killcliff Cascade Classic to find out more details. Next week, we welcome Glenn Penley for episode 119. Until next time, bye! <laughs>